My name is Peter. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober, part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And first things first, for some folks who don't know, uh, yesterday AA turned 78 years old, and uh, so that's a good thing. <clears throat> And I'm just thinking, a meeting between a proctologist and a wannabe stockbroker turned into the greatest spiritual movement we've ever seen. Uh, there was no AA meetings. There was no 90 meetings in 90 days. There was no big book. There was no formalized sponsorship technique. Uh, there was Bill and Bob in the Oxford group. And we have about 100 in here tonight and we probably have about 100 meetings in just Fort Lauderdale, I bet. And we have internationals that number 50, 60,000 and better. Um, who would have thought it? But what happens is when God, when God sparks something and the intent is pure, like our recovery, my recovery, great things come to pass for me and countless others. Our book says great events will come to pass for you and countless others. And uh, when we walk into a meeting, let's, let's be really mindful that is a great event. It's the last house on the block. And I need to treat Alcoholics Anonymous, how I do it, as a sacred place, as a sacred fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to treat it as such, whether I'm in the hood or Park Avenue. It is my home for that night, and it is sacred. And so I treat it as such. Um, I don't think Bill and Bob ever envisioned, even with Bill being a visionary, that AA would be 78 years old and has turned into what it has turned into. Now, I'm a recovered alcoholic, and I say that because I am, and anything less than that would be falsely humble. And as a recovered alcoholic, I'm here to tell you I've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body as well as the isms that accompany alcoholism. But I also have another responsibility when I claim to be a recovered drunk. And it isn't because I'm trying to be unique or different than anyone or special. It's just one of the promises at the very beginning of the book that it talks about. First promise in the book is recovered. But part of that is a responsibility that I need to not only uphold the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, but the tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because some places get so far away from the way it looked like when it started, it doesn't even look like an AA meeting. And so we have a great responsibility to hold the torch and keep it lit as to what our founding members did and put together the first 40 or so. Our book says 100, about 40 who put this together with some checks and balances and Bill spearheading the whole thing and God orchestrating all of it. And part of that is to be a recovered member of this fellowship and not just hang around going to meetings. Because I know meeting makers don't make it. Meeting makers die and get drunk. Some do. A lot of the moderate drinkers make it. A lot of the hard drinkers make it. The real alcoholic goes to meetings for a while like I did and gets drunk again, gets drunk on the way to a meeting, on the way home from a meeting. Real alcoholic recover needs to get recovered uh, via the spiritual transformation life-changing experience where the person who walks in a door dies and what's left is spirit. We need to experience the death of self before the physical death. And that's only going to happen with God being the master orchestrating the whole thing. And I won't get that by just going to meetings. Any relapse in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. We get all our little different colored chips and, you know, they look nice and they look pretty and we show them often as we should. But am I attached to getting a chip or am I attached to the power that's been keeping me sober all along? Because what the steps do is take us to a power that's keeping us sober all along. 
and I can't worship the methodology. I came and worship my home group or my big book or my sponsor, and we all will fall into that at some point. Sponsors God, big books God, my homes group God. But it's really about their, their vehicles to take us to the power which is keeping me and you sober all along. And a lot of us, while we're just going to meetings and not picking up, and based on our behavior, we should be picking up, it's just called grace. It's an unearned virtue. The way a mother or a father would, would clean their children and feed their children because they're theirs, God gives us the universe just because we're attached to him. God's offspring. In fact, the breath you're breathing right now is not you breathing, but God breathing through you and for you. Let me touch that for a minute. And then realize that God keeps that breath going. Many times, many of us, I know I'm one of them, should have been dead. And I get in front of a podium or behind a podium and share this great information that God has given me to share with you and shout from the rooftops about the power of God, shout from the rooftops about the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, shout from the rooftops about the 12 steps and never apologize for anything less than that great fact. My friend Art was showing me something early about what this looked like in 1946. And they said to experience this long-term sobriety, it wasn't about cutting corners. And take what you want. You love this one. Take what you want and leave the rest. I'm looking for a guy or a woman who's completely upside down to be very discerning as to, I need that but not that. Bad move. They said, here's the menu, order from the menu, it's called the 12 steps, and if you follow what it says to do, and they approached this, as I did in 1988, with a great sense of urgency, we won't drink. And even beyond that, we get recovered because we have a transformation from the inside that manifests out there. What we're doing speaks so loud, we can't hear a word just saying. You don't need to prove to anyone I'm recovered, we just walk in a room. You don't need to prove to me you're recovered, you just walk in a room. Your deportment shouts you're a man or a woman who has the answer. Now, in order to get there, I need to completely bottom out, and that's what happened to me. This time of year, 1988, I was homeless. God separated me from alcohol June 23rd, 1988. May, June, this time of year, 1988. I didn't look like, good or bad or indifferent, what I do tonight. June of 88, I was running around the streets of Brooklyn and Lower East Side of Manhattan, Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Um, with the same clothes on for a few weeks, probably longer than that. And I had bloodstained, soiled, they were, they were gray at one point, I don't know what color they were at the end. They were like workers' pants and they were ripped and shredded. And um, uh, I had a turtleneck, a brown turtleneck with a black kind of heavy jacket. And um, it's June, in New York in June it's hot and sticky. And I was sweating and cold at the same time. And I walked with these construction boots, I don't forget it, and the right shoe had a big hole in the front. I didn't care, I didn't care if you cared. I just knew I needed to get another drink in me. And I had gone through a few treatment centers detoxing from not only alcohol, but pills and some other non-conference approved dry goods and I had the marks on my arm to prove that. But 1988 and the treatment number six and seven, I didn't go back to the dry goods, but I could not, could not on my best day with all my willpower, all my willpower, stay away from a drink. I love drinking. I love Jack Daniels and that got too bad and I went to Mr. Boston Blackberry Brandy and I would IV it if I could. I love drinking. I love the effect produced by alcohol. Something flipped. 
by the time I got to my seven treatment center, and that was me cursing me for being such a weakling. Bill talks about that. I despised myself because I knew I needed to drink, and if I didn't, I'd get violently ill. I'm 28 and getting the shakes. Blackouts are a regular thing. And I was homeless. I was living in the streets, and, and um, I couldn't get enough drink in me. Those of us who have been around a while know what I'm talking about when I say this. You can't get drunk, and you can't get sober. You're just in that place. You can't crack the egg no matter what you do. And you're drinking just to survive, just to breathe, just to stop the shaking. <laughs> Not to get sick. I remember drinking, taking a pop off, off the pint, and it would, there was a point where it would just come right back up. I'd puke it right up, and the second one might stay down. I was in serious trouble. Damaged liver and some other things that were damaged, and I was bleeding from places I shouldn't be bleeding whenever I went to the bathroom. And I, I knew I was dying, but I didn't think AA would work. And I had lost contact with my family in 1988. They locked the doors. They couldn't come home. The last thing my dad says to me, when you're ready to get better, is what he called us. When you're ready to get better, you call me. He says, but I have two, 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 two other sons I have to protect. And I have to put my focus on them because you're killing your brothers now. And I remember when he told me that, how I hated my dad. I, I despised my dad for telling me that. I was sitting in his car that day. And I can only fathom what it's like looking at your oldest son, your firstborn, who's a, a, a blown-up drunk and reeks. And I asked him, the last thing I said, can you loan me 20 bucks? I mean, the audacity, the temerity to say, can you loan me 20 bucks? And he said, no, my dad would never deny me money. He's got to go. And so I, I hit the streets, and uh, there I was. I, I learned how to live on rooftops and abandoned buildings and, and hallways, and I used to go through the projects and, and try to steal clothes. I got caught in the rain a bunch of times. My clothes were all soggy. I used to try to rob clothes out of the dryers in the projects and, and panhandle by the Manhattan Bridge, and I wasn't done. God had to push me to the edge of the cliff where my fingernails were dug in. To get my attention to say, I'm sorry, please take me from this. No apology was needed. I wound up outside the Port Authority uh, one particular time, and I've shared this from a million podiums. I don't know what happened before, and I don't know what happened afterwards, but I do remember this moment of clarity. A book talks about the flimsy reed, which proves to be the loving and powerful hand of God, and I spit in the hand that was feeding me. God gave me a moment of clarity outside the Port Authority in Manhattan, and I cursed God for taking me to this place, for taking my family and turning me into what I was. I knew I reeked. I knew I was sick. I knew I was going to die. I welcomed the idea, just don't let it be painful. I remember trying... Uh, 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 eat a bottle of pills and washing them down and getting into bed and relish the idea of dying just like my mom died the same way. I was actually a quiet excitement that I'm going to die. I'm not going to wake up. And God kept interrupting my death over and over and over again. The words were very fitting when he finally sobered me up in 1988 and I begged and he says, I, enough, I have other work for you to do. God's orchestrating the whole thing. I couldn't see it then. And after I cursed my family outside the Port Authority, went about my business, and I landed in another hallway, which was usually I would, you would find me. An abandoned building, uh, a project that was kind of run down where there wasn't too much traffic because I walked with impending doom. I knew it was due to get arrested. I had been arrested in a while, and I knew my number was going to come up. 
You know, I dodged a bullet a few times. There were people in the, where I was kind of hanging around who were sociopaths. I mean, they'd stab you and go for, you know, for the lunch as soon as they're done. They had no remorse. I knew sooner or later I was going to run into the wrong crowd and get in trouble. And then I was thinking about taking my life a lot. I couldn't do it. If it feels good, it doesn't mean it's good. If it feels bad, it doesn't mean it's bad. And that moment of the moments bringing me to that moment in June 23rd, 19, did not feel good. They were the greatest thing that happened to me because 25 years later, I worship my God. I seek my God. And my life is one of service. Anyone knows me. My life is of service, not only professionally, but privately. I don't have a life. To someone new, that sounds lame. To me, it's the greatest thing I can experience. I don't have a life. Thank God, because I did have a life. That means my mind's in charge of my little kingdom. I'm the landlord, the ruler. And only the people my mind wants in are allowed in. But I had to bottom out. I landed in the hallway in June 1988, and I begged the same God I cursed to take me from this. I don't want to die is what I said. Take me from this. I don't want to die. And my God plucked me right out of a, a river that I was drowning in and placed me in my seven treatment center. Now, I've heard, I've been to AA meetings, got there drunk, left, got drunk. I remember sharing from the back of a meeting in Brooklyn. I was blind drunk. I remember little pieces of it, and I was character assassinating the speaker. I didn't know what he was talking about. You know, people in AA said, keep coming back. They gave me their phone number. This is the only place on the planet, by the way. I can tell you the most god-awful, terrible things I've done. And you said, here's my number. Give me a call. I mean, it's the only place we do that. <laughs> They told me to find God. They told me to get a big book, a sponsor's in the big book, and nothing less than that, because contemporary A was going to kill you, Peter, is what they said. You can't just not drink and go to means you're a real alcoholic. You can't put the plug in a jug, you pull it out. You can't remember where you come from, page 24 talks about that, because my mind, who's in charge of me, who's my God, who's in charge of taking me back to that which is going to kill me, takes me back to, it wasn't that bad. So I can't even think it through successfully. They told me to get a sponsor in the big book and find God. They're telling me, like the way we tell some new people in here, to walk a path you've never walked before and to experience a God you've never experienced before. Well, how am I supposed to do that? How do I see the path in front of me? Okay, there's 12 steps, but I never did this before. How do I do this? And the only way we get to see the path is by the, the flame that burns in our heart that lights up the path. How hungry am I for, for recovery? How hungry am I for, re for God? How hungry am I to get well? Because if I still have a lurking notion and, and uh, an idea, a reservation that somehow, some way, I can flip it my way, which is what I did for six treatment centers and a bunch of years, the end result was I got drunk. I had to come face to face, eyeball to eyeball with my addiction, and anything less than that, I would still be drinking or dead by now. I had to face my illness. Fate, we have to face the demons. It's called alcoholism. Many of us don't even realize what we're up against because we get comfortable in our local meetings and we don't realize we need to get God. We take credit for our sobriety. The only thing I can take credit for is me screwing my life up because I can't live life on life's terms. P.S. If anyone's telling you to live life on life's terms, find a new sponsor, huh? How's that working for us? Really, life on life's terms is life on my terms when they tell me that. 
can't live life on life's terms. We got enough. I got enough on my report card. I got drunk to live life on life's terms. I'm fear-based and insecure living life on life's terms. My life is unmanageable, step one, when I'm living life on life's terms. Unmanageability, untreated alcoholism, spiritual malady, all interchangeable. It's all unmanageability. We walk into fear and agnosticism, and it's a vicious cycle, but I'm going to meetings. How come I can't get right? How come I just don't have it? What am I missing? I'm missing God. I'm giving lip service to God, but I'm not in an experience, a current experience with God. That's what I did for years. I knew the AA lingo. I'd been to a bunch of meetings. I'd been to seven treatments, and I knew how to do treatment. I knew about my dysfunctional family, my triggers, my enablers, how to process my feelings. They're important. <laughs> my feelings are very important. You know. And now you have to be politically correct around me, too, because I love all people, and I judge no man. People in AA said, I don't care about your feelings. I really don't. I don't care if you hate me. I don't care if I piss you off. I'm here. You came to me for help. I'm going to get you well. We'll fix it up later. But for years, I battled with that. I don't like the speaker. I don't like the group. I don't like the town. It went on and on and on. What it was is I despised. I loathed me. And I wasn't in that place of complete desperation, a gift of desperation. And I bring this up. A little bit so you know where I've come from. And a little bit so we know how to look at step one. Now, someone like me, God had to take me to the street. Some of us land in Park Avenue, and we have six-figure uh, salaries. And we have a nice car, but we're still just as bad as the drunk living in an abandoned building because alcoholism doesn't discriminate. There's three things, and we talked about this last week, that are going to separate me from the folks who are drinking tonight and getting drunk. The guy smokes a little weed once in a while. Guy maybe eats a couple of pills once in a while. Separates me from that kind of crowd. And that's three things and three things only. And my feelings and my family have nothing to do with it. Oh, I can inherit this for sure. But right now, I'm tagged. And I can say, well, I'm an alcoholic because mom was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because my dad was an alcoholic. OK, but I still have alcoholism. I'm not any better. And I wore, by the way, my mom was alcoholic and, and addicted to pills. I wore that card on my sleeve for years. You know what it did? Kept me getting drunk until I took stock of me. I'm a drunk and I'm going to die. What am I going to do about it? And those three things I had to get internalized at a cellular level, a mental obsession to the thing that's killing me. And when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, this illness will go underground and resurface in other areas. They're called food sprees and sex sprees and money sprees and fear sprees and thinking sprees. Anything not to deal with me, because I can't be with me. Unmanageability is a state of consciousness generated by my effort to live life on self-will and the external world owns me. What you think of me owns me. What I look like owns me. What I drive owns me. How much money I make owns me. What she or he says about me owns me. Gossip destroys me when it's about me. But it's okay for me to gossip about you. I'm attached to everything outside of me or quite simply everything other than God. And when I live like that, I can talk about God from the lips. But God is now on the outer fringes, this invisible fringe of my life. It's over there and I pull it in when I need it. The 12 and 12 talks about using God as a pinch hitter. As soon as the handcuffs go on, please, God, get me out of this one. Book says God's everything or nothing. There's no middle of the road there. If I'm still debating, I'm not done. Everything or nothing. 
In order for me to come up with God's going to be everything, even though I don't know what everything looks like, what any lens looks like, where God's taking me, it's none of my business. My life is none of my business. I don't have a life that belongs to God and place me in AA. I need to be at the convincer in step one. My grand sponsor would call it step zero, what we did getting in here. Because we all have that moment before we walk into AA or detox or treatment where we have this moment where I'm in trouble. I need help. And that's at a gut level. And still with that, the mind will look to jump right in and start to make arrangements on what recovery should look like. You don't really need a big book. Look at you. You're great. You know, <laughs> what a tan I got. I, 12 steps. Look at me. I'm a star, right? <clears throat> she loves me. I don't need God anymore. We need just enough of something, whether it's money, relationships, sex, food, money. We need just enough. I need just enough of that to not need God. How much money is enough just to not need God anymore? How much food is enough just to not need God? How much prestige and property do I need to have and own just enough not to need God? And God has an interesting way of working. It isn't point A to point B. God will take me through valleys, up hills, lefts and rights, through tunnels, open fields, to walk me to where he needs to walk me. And all of it is about removal. Every path God takes me is about removal. I got to die in order to stand free. Well, what an order I can't go through with it. The process of recovery is subtraction, never addition. All the things I've accumulated, ideas that my mind has put in a warehouse, have to go. Because it keeps my life unmanageable, even though I'm going to AA meetings, even though I'm getting my six-month chip, my one-year coin, my 20-year coin. doesn't mean I'm well. It just means I haven't had a drink. I'm claiming to not have a drink or anything else for X amount of days or years. What's my spiritual condition like? What's it like when something hits, a thunderbolt, and I have a loss of a loved one, I have my health threatened for, for some illness, or just something, a loss of a job? Where am I with God then? What's that look like? Or do I look to go out there and fix it because I'm not feeling well? When the thunderbolt hits, do I throw myself into working with others? Do I hit my knees and beg God for more mercy and keep my soul from being poisoned? Let me carry a vision of your will, not mine, into all my activities. And when thunderbolts hit, do I say, your will, Father, not mine? There was a, there was a carpenter walked and he got real scared one night. He said, I can't do this. Can't do this. Take, give this to somebody else. I, I, I can't handle this. I can identify with that when we're, we know what's going to happen. And now here it is. I can't do this. And then he closed with, your will, not mine, be done. I'm going in. Because we're all going to have the thunderbolts. Because I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, it doesn't mean my life has been perfect. I've been near bankrupt twice. I've gone through a divorce. I've had my heart broken. I thought we are going to lose my dad a few years ago. thought we were going to lose my dad another time. My brother just came down with the sickness. I watched my brother battle depression. I buried my grandparents. I buried a bunch of folks in AA. I've been unemployed. I've had lots of money. I've, I've, all of it I've experienced, not once, not once, not once, not once did my mind say, we need a drink. I need something to deal with life because I'm no longer living life on life's terms. I'm living life on God's terms. Yeah. 
And you want to know something? Lots of times, well, let me rephrase that. Every time, at some point, those what appeared to be hardships was God's pruning and stripping because when I got to the other side, I said, this is great. It's a good thing that happened. What things I learned, what good things happened to me. Look where I landed. Quite frankly, before I got to Texas, uh, before I got to Florida, I was in Texas. I was running a treatment center. I was the big guy. The owner said, here are the keys, you're your baby. I work like a dog and I was very good at what I do. Still am. And then they just pulled the cop and says, by the way, you're out. They changed their philosophy. And I says, who's going to hire me at my age to do what I do? I'm screwed. I don't have a lot of money. I'm not a wealthy. I'm not a trust fund baby. I'm fighting for my life. Where do I go? And I wept for about two or three days. Where do I go? I found out despair is an extreme form of self. I was full of me. And I hit my knees as, Father, your will, not mine, be done. I don't know what to do. Where do I go? A month went by. I got a call from my friend Art. Do you want to come to work in Florida and run this, this program? You've got to be kidding me, right? It was the greatest thing that happened to me that Texas said goodbye because it gave me the opportunity to come to a place that to me is paradise I've been looking to get to my whole life. I couldn't see it. This is what God does, huh? Now you got to kill me to get me out of here, by the way. I'm leaving. I'm not leaving. Right. Unmanageability. I can experience even though I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. Page 52, we talked about this last week, uh, uh, has the bedevilments, things that frustrate, torment, and harass me. How am I doing? Am I still? Am I mindful to where I am? Do I walk with God? Is God an aberration? Where am I with God? Where am I with the next junk? Do I walk hand in hand with the spirit of the universe? There's no separation. There's no duality. It's just me and God. No power choice control over the first drink before I pick up. No power choice control after the first drink once I pick up. I get, I get, I get from both ends. I get smashed, bookended by this illness. I'm without power choice control sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Get counting days, counting years. But here's the flip side. Once we get this power... And we will get it through the 12 steps. The 12 steps promise us, guarantees us a vital spiritual transformation. Guarantees. For you druggies out there, if I said, I guarantee you this little bag will take you to the moon, you're saying, give me a, give me a bushel. I mean, you know. <laughs> Just on my word. We have it in print, and we have legions of drunks to back it up. That this book, these steps, will guarantee your spiritual transformation. Which means we're no longer powerless. Because step 10 says the problem's been removed. The booze or whatever you're into has been removed. We get great power. Anyone who's recovered has great power. No, I'm no longer powerless. Anyone's on the other side of the archway is no longer powerless because you've got the greatest power, the power. You walk with God. You're just not it. I'm not it, but I'm no longer powerless. I don't sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and have euphoric recall or obsession or thoughts about using anymore. It's been removed. And what's put in place of that is this power called God. And as long as I walk with this power and have an experience with God, my life seems to be very manageable, and it feels manageable. Doesn't mean things don't happen. 
Things happen. People throw thunderbolts at you. Drama's always around you. Alcoholics love drama. <laughs> and sometimes we could be drama-free and run into Joe, and Joe's got drama. Right? But my life, my core, my center has not moved. And all our book asks us to do is to nurture that. And when we nurture this power, we grow. Can't stand still. We grow in understanding and effectiveness. And suddenly we're walking with this power called God. And we say, oh my God, I remember when I was this way. And my whole life has changed. And before I came to the realization that my life has completely flipped the 180, people were noticing it. See, God keeps us humble. The last thing you need to do is tell a drunk, hey, look at me, I'm great, I've changed, I'm a superstar, I'm on fire. No, God doesn't do that. We keep chopping wood and carrying water, and everyone's witnessing this. While we're bearing witness for the new person walking in the door, because that's the responsibility. Once we're here a little while, this meeting's not for me. If I'm here a little while, get on a soapbox. If I'm here a little while, this meeting's not for me. I'm here to bear witness for someone walking through the doors in their first AA meeting or counting days. Somebody said they had one day or a week back, 30 days back there. Well, what kind of example am I setting for her when she walked in here? Does it look like a gin mill when she walked in? Or does it look like a sacred room called Alcoholics Anonymous that he or she feels safe? And I want to be like these folks. They're a little weird, but I want to be like them. <laughs> right? So I'm in a place of complete defeat, surrendering to this, to this thing called alcoholism, because only in that surrender can I grasp God. God can't have anything between me and him. And June 23rd, 1988, there were no bargaining chips for me, guys. There wasn't a relationship or money or a job. There was nothing. And I wasn't trying to get sober for someone or something. In fact, what I've come to experience in the no-thingness, the nothingness, is everything. When I'm stripped down to the raw and I stand before my creator, the universe is now in my hands. But if I'm trying to hold on to the universe and my money and my relationship and worship too, a house divided against itself can't stand. Love one and despise the other. You can't do that. You can't live like that. God's everything or nothing. What's our choice to be? And our book was really lenient there when he said, what's our choice to be? Before I get to a place saying, forget it, I don't care where I go, God's got to be it. Group of drunks, good early direction, G-O-D, I'm locking in. It's got to be better than what I've been doing. My grand sponsor would always ask us this, based on what you've been doing, how's that working for you so far? This is my 15th 30-day chip. Not too good. No shame in that. I'm a chronic relapser. No shame in that. But when are we going to put the car in the next lane? I'm hanging with the same folks, getting the same results. Maybe I should go to a guy like Mike Chase and say, hey, Mike, can you sponsor me, man? You're in the book. I'm dying. Maybe I'm a guy with 10, 15 years, and there's a guy there with one just got his one-year coin, but he's on fire with the book, and my ego won't let me go to a guy with one year and ask him. Go ask him. He's probably more on fire than the guy with 30 years in this book. Excited about it. We should be excited about alcoholism. Excited about God. Passionate about this stuff, huh? So I get leveled, and I walk into my seven treatment center. Bill talks about pacing, the Mayflower Hotel. Music, women, 
drink, bar, I have no money, everything fell through, I need something, work with a drunk. I'm in treatment number seven, and after about 10 days, I'm thinking a Mr. Boston Blackberry Brandy would be great right now because my stomach can't settle down. I'm sweating, I feel sick, I'm still shaking, they're medicating me, nothing's working, and the voice in my head always told me, who are you kidding? And I wanted a drink. But this time I surrendered, I told them I want a drink. I need to drink, I'm in treatment, I need to drink. They talked me down from the ledge. I had great counselors, by the way. These counselors told me they were in AA. There was no boundary issue. They told me how long they were sober. They told me they went to me. They said, when you come out, come to my home group. I knew I was talking to another drunk who knew what I was feeling. And after about 10 days, I went off to uh, uh, Minnesota and I heard a message at a meeting called the Three Legacies meeting. And these men and women got to the podium dressed, suit and tie. They went to the meetings dressed. They gave AA its dignity and they talked about the solution. They found the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I locked in and these folks would take me out to the diners and things like that. And I had no money. They never reminded me of that. They made me feel welcome. You're with us now. And they would get him a burger, get him whatever he wants. He's with us. And they paid a tab and they take me back to my little halfway house. And I was in a dorm with about 25 guys, and not everyone was clean. People made weird noises at all hours of the night. <laughs> uh, Neil knows what I'm talking about. Uh, um, and I had my little cubicle. And I had the clothes on my back. My dad sent some stuff by now to me. And I had my, was wearing my kid brother's sneakers, and that was a step up for me. I had about a 20 six-inch waist at the time. I was so underweight. I was so sick. And uh, I was the type of guy I'd have like a cucumber and I'm, I'm full. I can't eat anymore because it was just so shrunken. And um, I had my little cubicle and a bed and a little drawer and uh, my life felt incredibly manageable. I had no money. I had no job. I was living on an allowance that the sober house was giving me to meet my needs and my personal stuff. But I was in paradise, man. And I'll tell you something else. When I finally got home after about 11 months, uh, they told me you're going to go to treatment. You're going to go to a halfway house, three-quarter house, sober house. I was scared to death. I said, where am I? Where else am I going to go? Okay, put me in. I'm going. And when I came back to Brooklyn, I was sleeping on my brother's uh, couch, my kid brother's couch. I was sleeping on his floor. And um, I finally got enough money to get my own apartment. And I got my first little studio apartment. And I always like to share this. My first night in that apartment, I had some AA bumper stickers like you guys want, and I put them on the door. And I had uh, something that represents the carpenter. I put them up above the door. I had a Bible and a big book. And someone gave me a sleeping bag. That's all that was in the apartment. That was it. I just took ownership. And I slept on a hardwooden floor. I was living in Beirut, Brooklyn, in a sleeping bag. Bumper stickers, crucifix, scripture and a big book, and I was sober, and I was a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. That night, I was in paradise. It was the greatest night of my life. I slept, and I gave thanks to God for taking me from hell and placing me in a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous, because I knew the next day I'm going to go to an AA meeting. I'm going to see those folks, and they know me now. 
I'm going to walk in my head up and shoulder square. The lesson my dad always taught me, no matter what's going on, head up and shoulder square. I could never do that until I walked into AA. Huh? And I hit my knees and pray. I make a little prayers and go to bed. No women. Not worried about women. Not worried about anything else except keeping my, my sponsor. My first sponsor is you got a job. Staying sober. That's your job for now. To get employed. That's your job. You live AA. We began going through the steps, and I remember when we got to the third step, uh, he told me, your life is none of your business, and any lengths is none of your business. You just have to say, I'm willing to go to any lengths. That's how they taught me. And 25 years later, my life is none of my business. My life is one of invitation. It keeps me free from me. So I get leveled in step one. I know my life's unmanageable, and it isn't by the external conditions. It's about the internal condition. Unmanageability is an internal condition, never external. Perceptions of situations cause me pain and suffering rather than the reality of it. Unmanageability is an internal condition. Itself will run riot to the max. We will blow up anything. I will cause a traffic jam with two cars, right? <laughs> And if I'm not using, I'm thinking. If I'm not drinking, I'm thinking. I'm thinking and I'm thinking. And the mind is in charge of my life. I don't use my mind. I don't have thoughts. Thoughts have me. My mind uses me. It's my God. And it takes me by the neck and I go. I could be having a great day. My mind says, don't forget about this. And my day's ruined. And I got to go to a meeting and share for a half hour about this. <laughs> because if I'm miserable, you know you're going to be miserable too, right? Oh, no, that's marriage. I forgot that's marriage. <laughs> Easy, cowboy. <laughs> A little levity. Um, internal condition. Being separated from alcohol has little to do with being a recovered alcoholic. That'll ruffle some feathers. Being separated from alcohol has little to do with being a recovered alcoholic. It just means we're separated. When I spent a couple of nights in the tombs in, in lower Manhattan, I was not sponsorship material when they released me. I was sick, physically ill. My head was spinning in a million different directions. I didn't use for a couple of days before I saw the judge. I wasn't better. The mind is God, and I need to get unhooked from the mind. And I can't will that. I can't wish that. I can't remember. I can't do positive affirmations. I can't look in the mirror and say, I'm not going to listen to my mind because I'm listening it already. I can't do that. I can't pull that off. It's great information. A mere code of morals, a better philosophy for life sounds good. It might work for a short time, but my book says it doesn't save me. I'm drowning. I don't need you to pull me up and drop me back in. I need you to save me. I need you to pull me ashore out of the water. And we can do certain things as I did them, the experimentation of the relationship, going to the gym, outlets, hobbies, things. It'll keep us above ground, for, above water for a short time, but I'm alcoholic. At some point, I will pull the structure down on my head, my doctor's opinion tells me that, and go back to what I do. Step one says, I'm drinking. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful. It's patient. It doesn't care I'm sober 25 years. You think my alcoholism is going to say, we're going to leave Peter alone because he's a circuit speaker, he's got double digits. We won't touch him. We'll go after Joe and the back. I got a big target on me. And the illness will get us where it knows where we think we're doing well. I learned that when I started doing this. My grand sponsor and my sponsor sat me down. He says, you're about to get in deep water. 
and we got to let you go because this is God's deal. But your illness will get you where you think you're doing well, so take no credit for any talk you do. I learned that. That's why anyone who knows me, before I do these things, I usually don't pick up the phone. I go hide out. There's no radio, no TV. I have my meditation mat. There's a whole ritual I go through of prayer because I don't want to show up for this. I never want to show up. The body's here. I don't want to show up. So once I get leveled in one, where do I go? Now what? Step one just told me, Peter Marinelli, you're drinking until you die. There's no way out. Wishful thinking, positive affirmations, self-will, none of it's going to work. At some point, this patience of this illness will get me. So what do I do? Step one, we hear, I can't, he can, I think I'll let him. I never heard such, like, like arrogance. I can't, no, I'm, I am. I am going to run my life. I am going to go back to drinking. I am going to do what I want to do, regardless of the consequences in front of me. That's unmanageability. Put everything that's valuable to me, I'm still going to run the show. I'll run it into the ground. So step two is the life raft. It's the pointer to the solution. It isn't the solution. After they paint this, 43 pages, plus doctor's opinion says, Peter Marinelli, you're drinking, there's no way out. And even while you're not drinking, your life is still unmanageable. And you have a mind that'll take you back to that which is killing you. It might show up with sprees at first. But you're going. And once I'm convinced of that, they say, oh, by the way, we have a solution. It's called God. That you're going to get to a place, it's an arrival, you're going to get restored to sanity or wholeness of mind or truth or God, all interchangeable. And once I get the God mind to the removal of self, this metanoia, this removal of self for a new renewal of the mind, removal of self for renewal of the mind, I'm given a God mind. That mind's not thinking about drinking or hurting myself or anyone else. That's the spiritual transformation. Step two says, here it is. So we're going to get to a place that this power greater than me, and it could be a group of drunks who go all the direction at the beginning, just to lean on. We go through the steps, we'll have our own personal God. huh? Restore me to wholeness of mind. Step 10 promises that. The contract's delivered. My own conception about God, no matter how inadequate, is sufficient. My book tells me, I can tell you from my own experience, because I use G-O-D, group of drunks who go all the direction. But I would always approach God with my own misperceptions and conceptions about God, what God should look like, where God should come from, what God should do for me. Misperceptions and conceptions, and I would hold God up to this judgment based on my life. I would treat people like God and God like a person. I would forgive you in a second, but God can't forgive him. And God kept forgiving me. There's no problem with God towards me. The problem is always me towards God. God is pristine, consistent, abundant, forgiving, all love, no opposite. Who had the problem? Me. When I was doing good, God loves me. When things weren't so good, I hate God. And before I got here, I despised God. God was consistent, pristine, abundant, all love, forgiving. Still is. But what has happened is my perception of this power, my interpretation of how God works, and my relationship with God has completely changed. So let me bear witness to someone who's having a God problem, because that's what we all do. We all come in here with God problems. We believe in God, some of us, but we don't have the relationship because God took mom, God took dad, God took... 
didn't stop this from happening. And we use calamity out there to get in the way of me and God. Or the calamity in my head. Because we all got calamity in the head. Sit on the couch and boom, it starts. Well, where's God? Where's God right in front of you? God's pursuing me. God's pursuing you and begging for a relationship with everyone in this room. Begging for a relationship. This great power is begging, that's the humility, for a relationship with me. And I find out at the end of the day, when I surrender to God, this God is serving me. We talk about service being a direct reflection of God. This great God is serving, is getting on its knees to serve me. Huh? How great is your God? And all I have to do is say, I'm done, please, whatever it is, just please restore me to sanity because I don't know what to do anymore. The greatest thing a drunk can tell me is, I don't know what to do. I don't, where do I go? You're ready. Now let a big book sponsor be in your path and nothing less than that. I watched too many folks die in Alcoholics Anonymous. A guy just called me the other day. He has a sponsor. He's gripped in fear. What does your sponsor say? Not too much. He just says, pray it away. What? Have you done one, two, and three? Well, sort of. Not a big book sponsor. Hiding behind a big book. God's pursuing a relationship with me, pursuing a relationship with you. Begging for one. And step two is the point to the solution that I will get to a place of wholeness of mind. Power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. When we get on the other side of the archway, can, has, and will restore me to sanity by now. Can, he has, and he will restore me to sanity. Came to believe the power of greater than myself could restore me to sanity, to joy, to peace, to contentment, to mindfulness, to recovered. It's limitless with this power. How bad was my bottom? Chapter two Agnostics tells me how, where, and why to find this power. It introduces me to step two. I don't know where to find God. The great reality is deep down within. The guy or woman in a crack house right now with a needle in their arm or sucking on a pint of whiskey right now has just as much God in them as the Pope in Rome does right now. The difference is the relationship. God, people say, well, God's a fair God. Is he really? If he was fair, I'm dead based on my track record. I've screwed up too many times because the person who's walked saintly is going to the pearly gates. I don't have a shot. God's an all-loving God and a forgiving God. So regardless of the track record, I'm, I've been forgiven. Let's start anew. That's a great God. One more chance with you. Come. Right. That's all I got. Peace.